In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And we apologize that this is a day late. It is because I am recovering from a cold. Don't worry. It is not the coronavirus. Um, but I was in bed resting and wanting to die yesterday. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm confident that it's not the coronavirus because I'm sitting here right next to him. <laughs> and I do not have a self-destructive death wish of any kind. So... Yeah. So today we're going to be coming to you with uh, some fun topics that we might have some disagreement on. So that's going to be interesting. We're going to talk about impeachment. We're going to talk about guns, finally. And we're going to talk about some primary stuff. So our theme today is purity politics. So what I mean when I say purity politics is the idea that if a candidate is not ideologically pure, or a person is not ideologically pure on every single issue, then that undermines the rest of their activism. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because ideological purity doesn't really happen. There have been cases in which you have retired candidates, such as uh, Jeff Flake, actually say, oh, the only reason why I'm taking positions against Trump is because I'm retiring. And that kind of tells you a lot about Washington, D.C., because politicians seem to have this thought that ideological purity on certain issues are the only way for them to maintain power and maintain electability. And it might be a bit of a surprise that to some of our listeners that we're coming out and saying that, like, you shouldn't be expecting total purity all the way down from your candidates because we often criticize candidates for having contradictory positions or being inconsistent um but really like this is about like prioritizing and recognizing things that are feasible you should prioritize good policies over like a perfect record you should prioritize like effectiveness um over like a single issue and so like it's about selecting for the best overall outcome, not necessarily just internal consistency. Now, one, one reason why like the purity thing is so attractive, I think for politicians is on the one hand, because it is, is like a proven track record. It's like proven to work and it, because it works for so many. Um, so like if you're a Republican, you better get aligned with the rest of the Republicans. All those people got elected. People seem to like to elect them. Let's get on, on that bandwagon. But also I think for a lot of people, it helps close them off to some of the most, um, obvious counter arguments to their policies and their positions, which are arguments about internal inconsistency and hypocrisy. So if you're like, if your one goal is to be as internally consistent as possible to give yourself a nice defense against those challenges from the outside, you're protected from a lot of the most obvious critiques that people would have. Yeah. On the other side of it, though, there are some issues in which you can look at um, where you can look at a candidate's position and then you can look at who's giving them money for that position um, and then say, huh, 
that's interesting. You seem to get a bunch of money from health insurance companies, and yet you're against Medicare for all. This is one of the reasons why I'm a lot more critical of candidates like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg, who get a lot of money from uh, health insurance companies, uh, than I am on candidates like Andrew Yang, who does have a relatively moderate position on health care, but you can look at his funding and where it comes from and notice it doesn't necessarily come from the fact that he gets money from a bunch of uh, healthcare executives because he doesn't. Yeah. He's primarily funded on a grassroots level. And that's why that's one of the reasons why we're a lot nicer to him than we are to other candidates. Yeah. So it's not just about towing the party line. It's not just about having all of your policies be totally internally consistent. It's often about where the motivation for those policies are coming from. If it's coming from an interest in doing the right thing for like the American people, if it's coming from an interest of justice and equality, then you're going to get a lot more credit and you should get a lot more credit than even if you have good policy positions that are coming from the wrong places. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the candidate that you should vote for should be the person who most closely aligns with your own ideology. So purity politics can all, is also often thrown in the face of more progressive candidates as kind of a way of delegitimizing them. So you might say, oh, you only support Bernie Sanders because you care a bunch about purity politics. Well, no, I support him because he is most closely aligned to my ideology. If he was not in the race, then I'd support uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is the second most. And if she was not in the race and Bernie was not in the race, then I'd probably support Andrew Yang, who is probably the third most in line with my own ideology. So it's not necessarily, especially in a primary, the accusation of purity politics is usually a red herring. And one place that we've seen a lot of this purity politics narrative is in impeachment, which is our second segment. So Trump has specifically said that and uh, and like fired people that have spoken out against him and said that like he'll like put their head on a spike if people like vote pike. against pike pike put their head on a pike which is a kind of spike for allegedly you. yeah <laughs> that was that was reported that he said that is not it has not been confirmed that he said that ah it was one of the few times when he didn't tweet it so there is it's not yeah. a writing but at the same time he has been known to threaten people sure. who have spoken out against him like politically in other ways mm -hmm. so. I mean, I don't. Do I think that when he that if he actually did say put their head on a on a pike, that he was actually saying we're gonna go kill them? No, of course I don't think that. But if he did say something like that, it was probably a threat to Republicans politically that hey, you speak out against me, I'm gonna end your political career. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and so if you were a Republican candidate whose total motivation for your policies was trying to be dedicated to the Trump to like Trump fandom so that you could gain his favor and gain the favor of his base and get reelected and get reelected that would be a problematic motivation yeah and so in that realm purity politics is absolutely a negative thing okay so now that we're on the subject of impeachment Let's talk about exactly where we are right now. Yeah, lots of stuff has happened since the last time we've talked about impeachment. Partially, that's because we don't like talking about impeachment, because yeah. everybody's talking about impeachment. But history is being made. We need to talk about it. Yeah. And it's funny, because a lot of stuff has happened, but also not that much stuff has happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about where we are in the trial process right now, for those of you who may not know. 
So at this point, the articles of impeachment have been transmitted from the House, voted on by the House, passed, and transmitted to the Senate, where they are currently conducting trials. So they have voted on the rules and put together the rules of the impeachment trial. And at this point, the House um, impeachment managers, who are seven um, House members selected and um, selected by the House and and anointed by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, have presented their prosecutorial case in the Senate trial. And so that is that has already occurred, and I believe they had 24 hours to present that case. And, and right now, um, the Trump defense, which is put together of a number of lawyers, um, is mounting their defense, and they have also 24 hours as well. So a couple interesting things about like the actual procedure of what's going on right now. Um, so it's kind of funny that the senators in the trial are actually not allowed to speak at all during the proceedings. Um, if they have questions, they have to write them down and transmit them to Justice John Roberts, who is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and as such, presides over the Senate trial of impeachment. Um, and so he will actually read their questions aloud and they're not allowed to have any electronic devices or speak in any way. No one is allowed to interrupt. No one's allowed to like argue nothing. They can't have any beverages besides water and milk. Apparently milk is milk made the cut, huh? The mil milk made the cut. That's big milk for you. The you milk know, lobby. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I appreciate that. Cause yeah. if I, if I were in the Senate right now, I would definitely be drinking milk during this. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure the Wisconsin Senator is drinking lots of milk. During the um, and then, so both sides are, um, present their cases and are allowed um, to call witnesses. And then the senators vote on whether to approve or deny those witnesses. And those votes go on a simple majority. Um, so in order to have those votes passed, um, presuming all the government, all the Democrats vote to have the witness, they would need four uh, Republicans to join them. In addition, just so we all know what's, what the stakes are, they need uh two-thirds of all senators to support conviction and removal in order to get Trump out of office. Which would be 67 senators out of the 100 senators that are in the chamber. Yeah, so really, really so unlikely. They would need 20 Republicans, as well as all the Democrats, to vote in favor of the actual uh, taking him out of office. Yeah. Now, a few things we need to be clear. This is a foregone conclusion. Yes. Republicans have absolutely no shame whatsoever. Regardless of the evidence that do that does demonstrate that he is obviously guilty. I mean, we talked about it when it first came out. We talked about the transcript of the phone call that already showed that he solicited help from a foreign government. And that was the evidence that he provided that and that, that was, in and of itself was impeachable. And that was three months ago. And that was a three tremendous months ago. amount more evidence has come out yeah, since then. Yeah. You have, uh, you had his uh, chief of staff admitting that quid pro quo happened. Mm -hmm. Now you have, uh, you have confirmations from Gordon Sondland, Lev Parnas, John Bolton. Yeah. Um, specifically calling out that like not only did this call occur, not only was there agreement, but that these were specifically um, withholding aid from the Ukrainians in order to 
get them to announce a politically harming investigation into both Hunter and Joe Biden. Yeah. So like, and that Trump knew about it, was aware of it, and his motivation was specifically about the election. So the evidence is like overwhelmingly clear. And you might be thinking, well, if the evidence is so clear, what on earth is the Trump defense going to argue? And basically what they're arguing is that Trump's motivation was in fact not about um, Biden as a political opponent. It was not about influencing the 2020 election at all. It was about corruption in the Ukraine. That is, that's their big um, defense. And the defense is that that is a legitimate reason for withholding the funds from Ukraine and is not related to the, um, is not related to the election. It is all about corruption, which is interesting because like literally all of the evidence points to the fact that that is, was so clearly not on his mind. Like, yeah, he didn't mention it. He didn't mention like overall corruption in Ukraine at all during the call. He just talked about Biden. He hasn't worried about corruption anywhere else, like literally anywhere else in the world. He doesn't seem to get care except in the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, in text messages and, te- and testimony, his administration um, is seen to have repeatedly rejected uh, efforts and offers by the Ukrainian officials to more broadly cro- crack down on corruption in Ukraine. And those officials were instead insisting that they make public statements against the Bidens. He also didn't care about the Ukrainian corruption of his uh, former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who is convicted of failing to pay taxes on $30 million of earned income that he got from being a consultant in Ukraine. Um, And there were specific text messages going back and forth between the the former Ukrainian government and people in his administration trying to strike a deal where they would speak out against um, the Bidens, even though there was, they have subsequently called out there being no evidence of corruption um, regarding Joe Biden at all, um, and trying to strike a deal in order for to get favors. And keep in mind, the focus was not even on getting them to investigate Joe Biden yeah. or Hunter Biden. It was to get them to announce that there was an investigation. Yeah. And it's really hard to argue that the harm that you're causing someone is making is uh, bringing them to justice for corruption when what you actually want is the announcement. Yeah. Not even the actual like the actual investigation turning up any evidence to begin with. Sure. Didn't actually request an investigation, just a public announcement of one. And importantly, Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say, okay, Donald, you had pure intentions. As he's you had, saying. You represent that you had legitimate reasons for withholding the funds. Well, the Government Accountability Office has actually um, come out with a statement and a report indicating that the White House administration had no right to withhold these funds anyway, to begin with. When Congress appropriates funds the executive branch is not allowed to withhold them with just a few exceptions that the government accountability office, which is a totally nonpartisan um, part of the government uh, has, has specifically called out that Trump had had none of the exceptions, didn't communicate their intention to try to withhold the aid under these exceptions. It was a purely like under the table thing that violated the law withholding uh, funds that Congress has appropriated is against the law. 
And the report specifically calls out this, quote, faithful execution of the law does not permit the president to substitute his own policy priorities for that those that Congress has enacted into law. So even if his motivation was legitimate, his course of action was not. He was violating the law in any case. Trump cannot stop admitting to crimes on national television. <laughs> well, actually, in this case, international television, um, because he actually spoke in Davos, where he bragged about the fact that the Democrats don't have any of the materials because the Trump administration does. Keep in <laughs> mind, one of the things that he is being brought up on impeachment charges for is obstruction of Congress. Now, Michael and I did talk a little bit about how um, uh, there might be some questions as to whether or not that like rises to the level of impeachment because... They're in a legal battle as to whether or not they should have to turn over those materials. But the fact that he's out there bragging about the fact that we have the materials they don't is not a good look. Yeah. Saying the quiet part out, out loud. It's Donald. like, hey, we have all of the evidence of the wrongdoing. They don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Therefore, they can't catch us even though we did something terribly Stupid wrong. Stupid Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> this, you, can, you can beat in impeachment with this one weird trick. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the day, impeachment is a disappointing story on several fronts. I do think that when... The when when it is concluded, when most likely all Republicans vote to exonerate him, it is going to be important for Democrats to use that in especially the vulnerable Senate states. Yeah. To make it clear that if Susan Collins, for example, does vote to acquit Donald Trump despite this massive pile of evidence, that is demonstrated that she is not she is not willing to put country over party she's not willing to fight for her constituency she's fighting for herself and democrats need to use that every single republican who is up for re-election in 2020 democrats should hammer home these democrat these republicans actively were participants and they they were accessories mm -hmm. to allowing trump to get away with pressuring a foreign government using the powers of the presidency corrupt our elections to corrupt our elections and and honestly i still go back to one of our first discussions about uh impeachment where there are so many other things that i think the democratic party should have impeached trump over mm -hmm. like the emoluments clause uh and how that affected his decision to uh continue the saudi led genocide in yemen and i think that in some ways this is one of the weakest this is one of the weakest uh, directions that they should, could have taken impeachment, but that doesn't mean that this is not super impeachable. And when Republicans decide to be accessories because they are going to, um, they cannot let them forget that. History cannot let anybody forget the fact that 20 Republicans could have removed this criminal president and they refused to do it. Yeah. Ultimately, to Nathan's point, the point of this is not going to be to remove Trump from office. So the Democrats need to make sure that there is a point to all of this effort and money. And it's not just a political point. There is a justice component to it, but also there like to take advantage of 
the opportunity that this offers to communicate clearly about the corruption and the like purity requirements of the Republican Party at this point in time, you know, totally dedicating themselves to party over country or justice or any of those things, that has to be the nail in the coffin of the disintegrating Republican Party. And now time for our more positive segment, Tips for Good. Michael, what is our tip for good on this fine evening? Well, so this week we have an especially positive tip for good. As you know, we always try to bring good things that you guys can keep in mind or facts that you can be aware of that will make the world a little bit of a better place. And today, we're going to talk about health hugs. What is a health hug, Michael? So a bit of nostalgia for you. When I was growing up, um, my mom... I was there. Yeah, you were around a lot. (laughs) Um, My mom would always contend that um, human beings, in order to remain like healthy and psychologically sound, needed at least one good hug a day. And that is almost certainly false. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. But what it started was a tradition in my family that I've brought to other groups that I've been a part of when I was an RA in college um, and, and, and other times throughout my life where if you co- go up to someone that you have a, you know, a close relationship with and you ask them for a health hug, they'll like pause what they're doing and they'll give you a big like arm-wrapping bear hug. And, you know, you can take a moment, get a big hug in, you take a deep breath, and you feel way better. And it's something that I encourage everyone to do if you're a fan of hugging and if you have someone who likes hugging as much as I do. Yes. Uh, consent is always important when it comes to hugs. Yeah. Um, really and important also, caveat. And, and it's, it is also important to note that there are some people due to sensory issues or even just personal preferences that don't like hugs. Yeah. And if that's the case, if you don't like hugs, that's you know totally fine. Ignore this. Absolutely. But for those of you that do really like hugs and you have someone else who's around you who does really like hugs, I mean... Give him one of those. Yeah. It's a cool part. It can be a cool part of your relationship. It can be a really fulfilling thing and just a great little add, additive to, you know, some, a close relationship you have with someone. So go out there, get psychologically healthy and uh, get some health hugs. Yeah. I'd give Michael a health hug right now, but um, I'm still a little bit sick. Yeah. That'd be an illness. Hug. And it would be an illness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guns, 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 guns. All right, time for our next topic. We are going to talk about guns. And this has been an issue that uh, we've kind of briefly mentioned at some points because we both have, uh, Michael and I have some differing opinions on this. Mm-hmm. And I know that I certainly have some differing opinions on this to that of most liberals. And that's also part of why we made our theme purity politics because almost everybody has at least one issue in which they identify with the other side on. And this is mine. Uh, in a lot of ways, this is mine. And one thing I would like to say before we get started on this argument is I will 
concede that it is very possible that my own approach to this is based on the fact that I grew up in a very rural area in which guns were just a part of life. You know, you go home, you set up beer cans in your backyard, and you shoot them off a tree stump. Um, And actually, at a young age, I viewed guns in a very positive way, not just because of that, but because we lived in a rural area where there were frequently wild animals, sometimes rabbit animals, that would attack our farm. And I will never forget the time that I watched a rabid skunk chasing after my dog. I watched my dad grab his shotgun, go outside, and defend the farm with that shotgun against this rabid animal. Mm -hmm. And that does affect my view on this. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't. So... I would encourage those of you that are pro- that are more anti-gun, because if, if you are more progressive and liberal and you listen to this podcast, it's very likely that you are more anti-gun, to keep an open mind during this discussion and to try to listen to the merits of the argument. And I'm not saying that you should—I'm not expecting you to agree with me or agree with everything I say, but at least understand— that I don't come to these conclusions based on malice or based on not caring about mass shootings. Totally. If you've ever read To Kill a Mockingbird and you remember the Atticus Finch scene where he has to shoot the rabid dog, that's a real experience for Nathan and for many others. And outside of like the rabid dog example, like there are like arguments about being able to, you know, defend yourself are really compelling. And we'll walk through some of those. Yeah, yeah. So what's brought upon this discussion, Michael? So in Virginia... Um, which is which our home state. Is our home state and has recently been... Um, De- Democrats have recently taken the trifecta, so they hold all three reins of government at this uh, moment in uh, Virginia. And they have been working towards enacting certain um, gun control legislation. And um, it is a really hot button issue in Virginia. Some of you may know Virginia has been trending blue in a lot of areas, um, but this is largely in highly populated focused areas. And a lot of the more rural parts of the state are still heavily red. Yeah. And they like their guns. We like our guns. So there are three main measures that have passed the Senate committee that are being protested. And, and and when we say protested, 20 through 2,000 people showed up last week to Richmond, the capital of Virginia, in order to protest these gun laws. And most of them apparently declared like a state of emergency yeah. as well with yep. that, which I don't think that was warranted because at the end of the day, no one was hurt. It was a peaceful protest. Yeah, people had guns and that might seem intimidating. But I mean, if you grew up in Virginia, that's not a very like that's not a very abnormal sight. Sure. Um. And I think a lot of people were reminded just with the, the quantity of people and the amount of guns of the Charlottesville yeah. white supremacist rally that occurred yeah. a and couple of years ago. And this was not that. It was definitely not there were, that. And actually, um, if you looked at some of the pictures, there were definitely people of color there that were protesting it. Now, does that mean that there weren't any racists there? But it wasn't a rally for racism. It yeah. was a rally of people that disagreed with uh, the measures that were uh, taking that were taking fold. So we want to specifically talk about 
the four gun control measures in Virginia that were proposed, what we think about them, and then kind of have a broader discussion on gun control in general. So the first one is universal background checks. And I think that this is one that Michael and I agree on. Yeah. Like, I do think the government should not be able to know anything about its citizens at all whatsoever at any time. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, And actually, interesting uh, experience that I had um, with universal background checks. Um, So when I turned 21, uh, I went to a gun show and I got a handgun. Now, a lot of people hear about the gun show loophole in Virginia, and there is a gun show loophole. But the way it works is that if you are a gun store owner, you still have to do background checks at the at the gun show. If you're not, then you don't have to. And I think that's a problem. I don't I don't think that that's okay. But while I was getting the gun, I was actually uh, while they were doing the background check on me, I was actually talking to the the gun shop owner, and she was telling me about how just that day, a fugitive came to that gun show and tried to buy a gun from her stand and because she did a background check she was able to then call the cops who were able to pick her up Mm. and it's kind of concerning the thought that without that background check you might have had this person a fugitive from justice able to just buy a gun willy-nilly yeah so i think that I think that background checks are absolutely reasonable and mm-hmm. you know I know that that's an anecdotal example but it is a very real example. And and more generally speaking like as you think about policies you have to weigh their benefits versus their drawbacks. And even if the benefits of universal background checks are rare, which there is no evidence that they are. Like universal background checks are are uh, in repeated studies, like an effective way to limit violent crime with guns. But even if they weren't that effective, they're also really, really not imposing. Yeah. They're like, it took them maybe 15 minutes. Yeah. It was not that imposing. It was not that big of a deal. If you can't wait 15 minutes for your gun. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah. So it's just not that imposing. And like, it's not like they're going and pulling like what type of condoms you like to use. Like it's generally publicly yeah. available information that you would have to submit anytime that you got a job at an employer or you got a new apartment or any of these things. Yeah. So it's a really reasonable measure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure many of you have spent 15 hours at the DMV to get a driver's license. Yes. You know, that's just, it's just 15 minutes to get a gun. I, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. I think yeah. it's ridiculous to to throw a fit about it. I mean, in 15 minutes, Geico can save you 15% or more on your gun. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Geico does insure guns. I mean, as personal property, if you got a really nice gun. Yeah, I yeah, guess, maybe. I assume. So anyways, we, we, we mostly agree on that one. Uh, the next one, and this is one that I'm, I'm not entirely sure about, uh, letting localities ban guns from certain events in government buildings. So I think th- the purpose of this is likely like, for cities that have larger populations. Guns definitely do have a different role in cities than they do in rural areas. Um, and we do need to recognize that rural-urban divide. A lot of people within rural areas, one of the reasons why they get really pissed off about gun control is because the thought process is, I don't want some city folk, some city slicker, to come in and tell me how to live my life. From the big town with 10,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... 
where I come from, 10,000 people is a big town. (laughs) (laughs) This is a restriction on people entering like public buildings and certain localities with their guns. Yeah. So like we're this is going to be mostly like public spaces, buildings owned by the government. Um, I don't know. Like maybe you have to leave your gun in your car locked up or something yeah. like that. Or like you know, maybe if you're going to the DMV that day, you can leave your gun gun at home. Like I, I I'm curious <laughs> to see why. I'm not yeah. sure why restricting people from entering a space with a gun is different from like other types of reasonable use expectations for spaces, especially public spaces, you you know, like shoes and shirt required. Yeah. Pretty reasonable. Most, if you go into a private store, like any private space, you're also restricted. You go to the grocery store, like they can tell you that you're not allowed to have your gun there. Yeah. And the counter argument to this is normally the idea of mass shootings occurring in gun-free zones, uh, like schools and such. But I don't know how much evidence there is to really support that most shootings actually do happen in gun-free zones. Well, certainly most like gun-violent crimes are not in gun-free zones. They're like in the home yeah, or exactly. out in public that, that, the Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. So um, like... But- I, I'm not sure about like mass shootings in general as being like specifically yeah. a gun. So like zones. obviously schools, but I don't know if the solution uh, is necessarily let students have guns. I'm not against the idea of uh, allowing adult students on college campuses mm-hmm. that have special permits that that do have permits. Sure. They have had to go through training. They have had vigorous background checks. I'm not necessarily against that. Um, I know that a lot of liberals are probably cringing as I say that, mm-hmm. but uh, at the end of the day, if a person has been vetted properly, um, I don't think that that's a huge problem. Yeah, and I think the theme of this conversation is going to be like, let's think about fact-intensive ways that we can try to prevent these things from causing harm while being as least least restrictive as possible. So yeah. let's be targeted in our in our limitations, targeted in our restrictions. And I think like that is actually a great example. Like what you said was basically I'm not against people that have been thoroughly vetted and had like very like a, gone through a thorough process to make sure that they're not a threat from not being a threat with a gun in a public space yeah. or like in a college campus. Cause uh, again, another, you know, another experience that I've had, uh, and, and I know that a lot of these are based on my own experiences, but an experience that I had one time was a while back, uh, at the beginning of this year, there was a false alarm on the George Mason campus that said that there was a person on campus that had a weapon mm-hmm. and I was on campus when this happened and I was in a room and I remember getting that alert and everybody in the room just being terrified. We locked the doors. We put coins in it, like coins in the frames because oh. that actually prevents it from that. That's more open. reinforcement to keep yeah. it from opening. And what's interesting is a lot of the other people in the room were thinking, um, like, Oh God, it's so they were they were thinking oh god i hate guns like um it's so bad that this is what we live in and look i will i it is absolutely true that the united states does have a unique gun violence problem yeah 
But what I was thinking in that moment was, I wish I had my gun with me because I was terrified. Mm-hmm. The NRA argument of good guy with a gun is a gross oversimplification. Totally. And I do recognize the fact that in those situations, if a cop responds to a mass shooter, they don't know the difference between the good guy with the gun or the bad guy with the gun. Yep. So there is definitely an argument to be made that if we allow people on campus, mm-hmm. on campuses to have guns and they use them to defend themselves during mass shootings, that that could then put them at risk of being mistaken for the shooter. There's mm-hmm. a, that is absolutely true. Totally. But in that moment, I was thinking, I'm terrified. I don't have any weapons besides like this yeah. chair. But then also, <laughs> you know? like it takes a lot more than just the presence of a gun to use it as an effective defense tool, yeah. right? It takes yeah. like it takes training, it takes skill, it takes you know a lot of a hell of a lot of grit. Like, yeah. like hence, there hence are the point lots that I made, of hence the point that I made about. Uh, in this system, they would have to be well vetted and go through some go through vigorous training. Yeah, um, I think that makes and I think that makes total sense. Like again, we're trying to get to a place where we can have as much of the good things and as few of the bad things as possible. And one of the really bad things of having unskilled people in public places trying to defend themselves with guns is collateral damage because they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, if I think about myself who has shot guns for a very long time, but is in no way a self-defense expert or would, would consider myself capable of like being in a room full of people and properly exercising gun safety, such as to minimize the potential for collateral damage in a situation like that. Like, I don't even think I would have the confidence myself in order to, to execute that. So I think it would take very specific training. I think it would take very specific expectations of those people. And so like, I'm not saying that it's, it's a terrible idea to have somebody who is able to defend like the area, but like, it seems like that should either be a professional or someone who's been specifically trained or someone who's specifically uniquely equipped to address the situation. I think it is, it's, it is much more complicated than either side would like to admit. And I think that's true of like, I think that's true of the gun debate in general is just the amount of straw manning yeah. truly on both sides with very little, like you you look at like a lot of the, you hear a lot about the people that marched on Richmond this past week. And many of the arguments were just, well, if they pass universal background checks next they're going to take away all our guns. Yeah, which is a slippery slope argument. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a fallacy. And and certainly a fallacy in this case. There's no reason why why one thing would lead to another, which would lead to another. And in fact, I would almost argue the opposite, because I think that we've gotten to the point where people are so divided in the gun debate that there aren't any reasonable arguments. I don't think yeah, that the NRA... Exactly presents reasonable pro-gun no arguments i think i mean most of them are based on fear uh hell oftentimes they, they actually they actually had this one ad campaign in which they were saying you need a gun to defend yourself against undocumented immigrants who commit less crimes than natural born citizens so there's a lot of racial aspects of that but it's it's fear-mongering they're not making good arguments that is hilariously bad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is like it is hilariously bad, and it totally makes sense for when liberals see a bunch of fear mongering from the NRA who say things like, "Oh, background checks. Next, you're going to turn us into Nazi Germany." 
which is a complete straw man. Um, yeah. Like, it is reasonable for a liberals... A straw man. To, yeah, well, it's reasonable <laughs> for liberals to see stuff like that and be like, oh, well, that's stupid. These are stupid arguments. Yeah. And then to continue to move farther and further to the left on mm -hmm. the issue of guns because there's been no reasonable force holding them back from that. Sure. So I don't actually fault a lot of the gun activists uh, nowadays sure. for caring this much about uh, gun control because... People are dying, like yeah. like the Parkland students. I, I disagree with a lot of what they advocate for, but I have a lot of respect for them mm -hmm. because they're desperate. Yeah, They watch their fellow students die. Yeah. And the NRA has been refusing to budge an inch on anything. And I think that yeah. ultimately, like they say, if we budge an inch, then they'll take a mile. I think ultimately the opposite's going to happen, that you're going to further and further drive people to the left. And eventually, as has already happened, um, a majority is going to support certain gun control uh, measures, which they are a, a, a majority already support things like uh, an assault weapons ban. Um, and then you're going to lose a lot more than you would have lost yeah. if you had just given a little bit. If one side is arguing, save our lives from being murdered as yeah, children. Exactly. And the other side is arguing, but what about the scary immigrants? <laughs> it's just not, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. And, and of course, any reasonable person would default to the side of people being murdered. Yeah. So like, that seems totally reasonable. And and we'll try to like, we'll try to add some legitimate yeah. weight to the you know, pro gun or pro like second amendment side. Um, at least I know, I know that Nathan will. Yeah. Um, and I will where I agree with it. Um, but like, yeah, to your point, like putting up crappy arguments for guns is not helping anybody. Yeah. All right. So, uh, let's move on to the third, uh, proposal, which is a uh, red flag law. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about red flag laws, uh, especially for me, is that I definitely support the principle of making sure that the wrong people don't have guns. I, I absolutely support that principle. Yeah. But I'm also very wary about making sure that due process is followed. So let's talk about exactly like what a red flag law is. So generally speaking, this is very general, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Virginia specific instance. Generally speaking, a red flag law is when um, someone is able to go to an official body like a court or a judge and get them to um, require that another person's guns be taken away from them so that uh, if they present a potential harm to themselves or others. And so like that's super general. Specifically in the Virginia case, it requires that uh, either uh, the attorney or someone from their office or a law enforcement officer go to a some kind of judge or magistrate and make the case for a um, that that a specific individual is a substantial risk to themselves or others. And should they make that case successfully, the judge can issue a warrant and an order for their guns to be removed from their home um, and placed in like custody uh, um, by the local um, police force or a designated third party. And basically the point of this is so that 
for, if for a short time, so I represent or someone represents a risk to themselves or others, you can get an emergency immediately enacted thing that can help remo- reduce that risk as much as possible. And you can, uh, and this only lasts for like 14 days and you can have it renewed, but only for a maximum of 180 days. So it is, it is meant to be a short-term remedy for a specific targeted emergency potential harm. Yeah. So it sounds pretty reasonable, but we there are some concerns that are legitimate to think about. Yeah. So one concern, as I kind of alluded to, is due process. Um, first off, a lot of people cite the Constitution uh, when it comes to defending gun laws, and a lot of people default to the Second Amendment. But it's also important to note the 14th Amendment, which says that you can't deprive someone of property without due process. And I would argue that there are some forms of the red flag law that does not follow adequate due process. In my opinion, if you want to deprive someone of property, there does need to be a hearing in which they do have a chance to defend themselves. Um, Now, I know that the point of this is in case of emergency, and the only people that are allowed to, uh, that are allowed to try to demand a uh, an emergency order is law enforcement, which is actually different from a lot of other states. In a lot of other states, it's not just law enforcement, it's family and friends. But at the end of the day, you're still taking property away from someone and they don't have a chance to defend themselves. And I'm not really okay with that. That doesn't mean that there isn't value to the argument that we need to make sure that the wrong people aren't having access to guns and that there aren't reasonable iterations of a red, of a red flag law. But I don't, in my opinion, the Virginia version is not that. Uh, yeah, uh, I can't quite decide. Like, it seems pretty close to that. There's There are official guidelines, there's official limitations, um, and basically the only thing that it seems like it's missing is an initial opportunity for the person to defend themselves. At least that's how... It, it reads. Um, and from my perspective, like the counter argument to that requirement would, and, and they do have the opportunity to like go back and I believe defend themselves within like 14 days. But the, the issue with that requirement, I think is probably just one of practicality. Like, you know, you've got someone that's a risk to themselves or others. Allegedly. Alleged risk to themselves or others. You cite them with some kind of subpoena. Hey, you have to show up at court at X date in order to defend yourself against this claim, giving them time to execute whatever thing that they allegedly might be thinking of executing. And, you know, before they can actually take any action at all. The, the analogous claim to me is like getting a warrant for some to search someone's home. You often need to do that without notifying them. Because if you notify them, that gives them the opportunity to either remove the uh, incriminating stuff or avoid the implications of the warrant in general. So warrants, by like by definition, have to be a surprise. And so I wonder if like the argument for this being an emergency procedure is along the same lines. Yeah. Also, um, this is a policy that has been supported by President Trump in the past. In which he actually, he actually, uh, when asked about due process, he said, quote, take the guns first 
go through due process second, which, by the way, that that's not how due process works. <laughs> it's not due if you do it later. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so nationally, national red flag laws, if that is the approach to it, is very concerning. So, I don't know. I, Virginia's red flag laws aren't as extreme as it could be. Mm-hmm. And I... I I can't necessarily muster up outrage for it. Sure. Because it doesn't go extremely far, but I don't think that there is adequate due process in this iteration yeah. of it for me to express my support for it yeah. personally. Yeah, I think um a couple concerns I have is something that we were talking about before recording, which was like the the likelihood for this to be used against like disproportionately against minorities. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's definitely something to keep in mind, especially with combined with the warrant aspect of, you know, of this claim. And so basically the procedure as, as I, as far as I understand it is that once they have this substantial risk order, it is accompanied by a warrant for them to go in and take the firearms. So the thing about a warrant is that once you have it, you're not allowed to search everything, but anything in plain sight is fair game for the law enforcement official. And so I wonder about this being a loophole for being able to get easier, less stringent warrants, which could potentially face a um, violation of uh, Amendment 4 of the Constitution, no unreasonable searches and seizures, yeah. which is basically like, if all of a sudden, you know, I don't know how high the bar is for a substantial risk, but if you can make a, a relatively easy case for a substantial risk of someone that wouldn't otherwise be able to meet the threshold of probable cause needed for a warrant, then all of a sudden you've got a way easier way for you to get into people's homes and potentially be violating their privacy. Absolutely. Um, and the fourth proposal is one handgun per month. And this is one that I absolutely object to because it, it again, it comes down to personal freedom for me. I guess the one of the, the the main argument for it that I've seen is it prevents gun runners from being able to like smuggle legally obtained guns from Virginia to places with more stringent gun laws like, say, New York. Which is an enormous problem. It is a problem. It is absolutely a problem. But I feel like if another state has stringent gun laws that then creates a black market of guns, which, by the way, is a warning that is often issued by gun uh, by anti-gun control advocates that um, stringent gun laws can sometimes result in a uh, black market of guns. I mean, look at the war on drugs. It's a, it's exactly. a great example of exactly um, that. Then I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that, uh, the solution is, I, I, the solution then just becomes a game of whack-a-mole, which I don't think is the right approach. What do so you think? I'll, so I'll take a little bit of the devil devil's advocate side. I thought I was the devil's advocate. No, we're, now I'm, <laughs> now we're switching even further. Um, so I will be then the angel's advocate. Okay. <laughs> um, so why would someone need more than one gun to purchase more than one handgun a month? So when it comes to proposing legislation, the onus should be on the person proposing it to determine a problem in which they are solving. And in this case, the main problem is the gun running. 
And my argument then is, um, well, I don't think that this is the best solution for that. I think a better solution is to relook at some of the laws that the states that these uh, that have created black markets for gun runners, um, for those to for those laws to be looked at more. So I, I guess I would say that I would argue that to say, um, well, why would you need it is kind of committing a burden of proof fallacy mm -hmm. because when you propose. When you propose a law, the onus should be on you to justify what problem it solves and why it's necessary. I'd agree with you. I think that I so so it's not it's not very clear to me like what problem this is really solving. Like, okay, it, it probably is trying to address the black market gun problem. But that seems like the right solution for that is actually more national gun control and less state oriented. Yeah, gun absolutely. And I think, so this is, to me, this is their attempt to patch something with a really inadequate yeah. solution. Like I said, it, it becomes sure a game it, of gun control whack-a-mole, you know? Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Okay. So we've talked about the portions of legislation that have been, that have actually like moved through the Virginia Senate, um, and that were specifically being protested against. But there are a number of other policies that are, have, have been proposed, they're being worked on right now, and they might you know, move towards a vote at some point um, in the future. One would be to raise the penalty from a misdemeanor to a felony for people who recklessly leave a loaded gun in a place that endangers the life of anyone under the age of 18. Um, I think that seems like pretty reasonable to me, like lock up your guns, keep them unloaded, keep them in a reasonable place. Like don't. There's definitely, there's definitely a conversation to be had about uh, gun negligence laws. Yeah. Um, now I, 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 at the same time, I do understand the argument that, uh, say someone who's like 16 steals your gun. Sure. And uses it to commit a crime. I would say you're a victim of theft, but then, you should also be punished because you were a victim of theft. I, I well, it requires I guess, it requires reckless negligence. Yeah, yeah. I, so, so I, so that that's why I say that I, I, in general, I support gun negligence laws, but I mm -hmm. do think that um, there are ways in which we do need to be conscientious as we approach them. Yeah, and another one is just that it would require gun over gun owners to report a lost or stolen gun within twenty four hours of being becoming aware of its loss. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. Yeah, that seems yeah. pretty reasonable to um, me. Also, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about that when I read this, it like my jaw dropped. So we talked about how the Senate has been taking up a lot of. Uh, gun control measures. The same panel that has been looking at a lot of these gun control measures has, has actually passed a series of Republican-backed measures that would increase mandatory minimum sentences for gun law violations. They've passed those? No, 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 no. They didn't pass them, but they were Republican-backed. They tried to pass them. The Republicans tried to pass them. So, to be clear, Republicans who are arguing... We can't have gun control. They're the ones that are arguing that, but if you break the law, we are going to punish the hell out of you and increase mandatory minimum sentences for gun law violations. And so here's the reason 
in case you haven't figured it out, why Nathan's voice has gotten so high and stressed. It's because mandatory minimums are almost always used in order to target minorities to like increase the incarceration of like black and brown people. And so basically what these laws are trying to do is, okay, if you violate the law, which is already not very restrictive, but it's mostly a restriction on felons um, owning guns and things like that, you're going to be thrown in jail for a much longer time. Yeah. And, and this brings us to what I think is the most important point and what I think is the biggest reason why progressives and liberals really need to think twice about gun control or at least think more conscientiously about gun control because both sides leave minorities out of the argument. Yeah, that makes Here's, total let sense. Me, let me read you a statistic that amazes me. So the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Explosives uh, more than quadrupled its use of stings in the past decade and quietly made them a central part of its attempts to combat gun crime. This is according to USA Today. Uh, the operations designed to produce long prison sentences for, subject, for suspects enticed by uh, the promise of pocketing as much as 100000 for robbing a drug stash house that does not actually exist. Oh my gosh. Hold on. So to be clear, what that means is that they're using stings to enforce uh, new gun laws. And at least, this is the crazy statistic, at least 91% of the people agents have locked up using these stings were racial or ethnic minorities. 91%. So liberals, progressives, people that care about making sure that we have a more egalitarian society... A lot of the gun control measures that you advocate for disproportionately hurt the very communities that you care most about. Gun violence affects minority communities disproportionately. But the solution cannot be lock people up. And I don't think that it should be bans on possession. Now, I am absolutely for an increase in, in gun control measures in some ways. But when it comes to possession bans, we need to be very careful. And one important point that I want to make about that, you know who first started the modern-day gun rights movement? It was the Black Panthers. Yep. You know how it started? In the 60s, the Black Panthers were known for patrolling the streets with guns out with the idea of protecting uh, minority communities from police violence. And that made a lot of people in California very uncomfortable. One particular California governor known as Ronald Reagan, who then signed into law the Mulford Act, which prohibited open carrying of loaded firearms. Mm -hmm. And he did this to disarm the Black Panthers. He did this specifically to target black people. There is a long history of gun control measures being used specifically to target African Americans. Yeah. And I'd say where this, where gun control starts to look like, like drug regulation, like the war on drugs, is when like the red flags should absolutely be waving. Like we are trying to address a problem and the best way to do that is one, to study the problem. Two, 
to create targeted specific solutions with goals in mind that they can actually legitimately serve. And three, to avoid collateral damage, which is the disproportionate effect on minority communities, the increase in our prison population, the increase in prison sentences related to this. Like the goal, we're, we're trying to solve a complex problem. And so we need to learn a lot more about it. Yeah. And the final point related to that is let's talk about the Dickey Amendment. The Hubia Wetsy? The Dickey Amendment bans the CDC from studying gun violence. This is a measure that has been advocated for by the NRA and the Republican Party. And it makes it so the Center for Disease Control is not allowed to study gun violence. Now, this right here is one of the places where I would say that the Republican Party and the NRA really does show who they are. Because if you are someone who actually does believe that more gun control does not make it does not make people safer, then logically you would want to make sure that there were studies that you could point to that show that. Alternatively, if you don't believe that that's true, then you would prevent those studies from being put forth. So for this reason, I honestly think that the main, that the most Repub most elected Republicans do not actually believe in the pro-gun legislation that they fight for that they only do it as a means of maintaining power from their constituents. Keep in mind, these are economic elites. These aren't like your rural people out in the boonies. Maybe some of them grew up th around there, but most of them are the same type of DC elitists, and they're using gun control as a scapegoat. And they're using gun laws in general as a way of getting you on board with an economic agenda that ultimately does not benefit the United States. So it is. So at the end of the day, one reform that I think absolutely has to happen is we need to overturn the Dickey Amendment. We need to study gun violence. And we need to be conscientious and smart in the way we approach gun control. So now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the Week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, we have a first time this week. Um, we have a woman this time. Hey, good yeah. for us. Yeah. So we just hey, like to- women have asshats too. Yes. And here at the Perspectrum, we are an equal opportunity condemner. <laughs> Condemners? I don't know if that's a word. Okay. Uh, our asshat this week is Trump's spiritual advisor, mm. Paula White, who said during a sermon, quote, In the name of Jesus, we command all satanic pregnancies to miscarry now. We declare that anything that's been conceived in satanic wombs, that it'll miscarry. It will not be able to carry forth any plan of destruction any plan of harm. Wow, that's that's terrible. Yeah, and it sounds crazy. Wait, wait, I thought gets... they were pro-life. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought too, but apparently not. But apparently and... life begins at conception only for Christian babies. Well, well hold on. Let's also, um, let's also go back for just a second because let's be clear about who she's talking about when she says demon babies. We can figure that out based on what she said in the past. White in the past has suggested that political opponents of Donald Trump, quote, operate in sorcery and witchcraft. 
So when she's talking about demonic babies, she's talking about the children of people that are against Trump. And this is the pro-life party. Oh my! And God. this is Trump's spiritual advisor. So, like his spirituality. Yeah. When you first, so when you first mentioned that it was his spiritual advisor, I thought, oh, it sounds like he, based on his actions, listens to her about as much as he listens to his other advisors. <laughs> um, but now it seems like they're really on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> so it is. I mean, it is terrible to wish miscarriages on anybody, and the fact to use that as some kind of a political stunt is just unforgivable. And the fact, and the worst part of it is the fact that this is the spiritual advisor to the president. Like you can tell a lot about a person by who they surround themselves by. And Trump has definitely surrounded himself with a lot of assets. This is the second Trump advisor like, that has made the list. I wonder if it's like a um, Pharaoh of Egypt having all of the male um, babies in the kingdom killed so that they couldn't displace him. I wonder if it's like Trump, like, oh, being a freaking demon, I better have all the other demon babies, you know, miscarried so that they don't replace me as a, <laughs> as the devil. <laughs> well, I don't know. But regardless, let's give a hearty congratulations to Paula White for being our Asshat of the Week. So now we're going to talk a little bit about primary news. Specifically, we are talking about Bernie Sanders. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Last week it came out that Hillary Clinton had some things to say about Bernie Sanders. Wait, she's not a fan? Apparently she's not, hmm. which is funny because all the things she he did for her in the 2016 election, but we'll get to that. Um, she said, quote, nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He got nothing done. He was a career politician. It's all just baloney, and I feel bad that people got sucked into it. So let's just break that apart real quick. When she says nobody likes him, to be clear, she's talking about people in Washington, which, I mean, good. That's part of why people like him outside of Washington, because people don't like Washington. Yeah. Also, for Hillary Clinton to call him a career politician. That's hilarious. It's, I mean, talk about the pot, the pot calling the kettle black. And also, the whole, I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. That's just so patronizing yeah. to a lot of people who have legitimate struggles that look at policies like Medicare for all and free college tuition and forgiving student debt and all that as being legitimate solutions to problems that people of certain socioeconomic statuses face. So... That's annoying. But didn't she also say that she wouldn't support him if he received the primary nomination? So she wouldn't commit to it. So in an interview, she was asked if she would commit to supporting Bernie Sanders if he got the nomination, to which she said, I'm not going to go there yet. Which mm. is interesting because the big message uh, after the primary in 2016 was unity. And considering the alternative, so does that mean you support Donald Trump? Okay, probably it doesn't mean she supports Donald Trump, but it does seem to mean that she's okay with Donald Trump having four more years. Now, later she clarified uh, in a remark after she got a bunch of backlash, she said, 
I thought that you all wanted to hear my honest opinion, but okay, fine. I commit to supporting anybody who uh, gets the nomination. And like, look, I think that uh, ultimately she will support uh, Bernie Sanders if he does get the nomination, but she's smart. This was not a misunderstanding. This was not um, her saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. She knew exactly what she was saying. And the fact that people blame Bernie Sanders for what happened in 2016 for Hillary Clinton losing is absolutely ridiculous. And let's look at some facts just to back that up. So number one, people say that Bernie Sanders did not do enough to rally his support. Now, part of that is, oh, he, he waited a little bit to endorse Hillary Clinton. Like he didn't endorse her right away after it was clear he was going to, he was not going to get the nomination. Well, the reason why he did that was because he wanted to make sure that he got some concessions out of her. He wanted to make sure that she was going to make herself a better candidate based off his criticisms, which she did. And then she got his endorsement. Number two, Bernie Sanders did 39 rallies for Hillary Clinton in three months. So you're saying he didn't do enough to campaign for you? This was a senator who did... 39 rallies over the course of three months. What more did you want? And the biggest point, the biggest point that I want to make for this, the biggest fact that completely blows this narrative apart is the fact that it is true that um, 6 to 12% of Bernie supporters did vote for Trump. That is true. But in 2008... 24 to 25% of Hillary Clinton supporters voted for John McCain. Bernie Sanders did a better job of rallying his supporters for Hillary Clinton than Hillary Clinton did rallying her supporters in 2008 for Barack Obama. So to say that it was his fault, to blame him for this, the facts just do not support that. And the reason why it's important to talk about this, the reason why it's important to bring this up is because Hillary Clinton does still have a voice in Democratic politics. A lot of people voted for her in the primary. A majority of Democrats that voted in the primary voted for her last time around. Her voice does carry weight. And if she is saying, oh, well, I don't know, maybe it would be okay if we had uh, four more years of Donald Trump in order to avoid a Bernie Sanders presidency, that kind of gives license to a narrative that has been repeatedly proven false over and over again, it is destructive to the Democratic Party, it is destructive to progressive politics, and it is so irritating because Bernie supporters were consistently gaslit in 2016 and blamed for it going to Trump when there are no facts that actually back that up. And another, you know, pillar of the Democratic Party recently also... Um, refrain from committing to support Bernie if he were the nominee, and that was Joe Biden. Yeah. Joe Biden told reporters, and this is uh, six days before the Iowa caucus, when asked if he'd support Bernie, he said, I'm not going to make judgments now. I think it depends on how we treat one another between now and the time we have a nominee. I would just like to point out that Bernie was the first candidate to sign the pledge that he would support the ultimate candidate. And now Biden is saying, oh, well... I mean, 
if he says mean things to me, then I guess it's fine if Trump is president for four more years. Yeah. Again, that just seems so petty, weird, especially when Biden and Buttigieg and Klobuchar, all the moderate candidates are running on an anti-Trump platform that Trump would, that a, that four more years of a Trump presidency would be catastrophic for the United States and would do unrepairable damage. And yet they're not willing to say if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, we'll support him. Like, yeah. is uh, certainly, certainly there's no world in which they think a Trump presidency would be better than a Bernie presidency. I just, so I don't understand, like, why they're playing this weird cat and mouse game. I don't know, like, know what they could possibly gain from it, except for driving disunity in the lead up to the Iowa caucus. Which, again, is just bad for the party, and it's bad for the country in general. So this is really disappointing, and it comes after there's been a lot of, uh, there, there has been some attacks on Joe Biden's record from the Sanders campaign, specifically on the fact that in the past, he has advocated for cutting Social Security. Now, his response has been, oh, Bernie's lying. I advocated against privatizing Social Security, which is a red herring, because the question wasn't whether or not you fought for or against privatizing it. It was about whether or not you fought for cutting Social Security, which he has. Now, I don't think that that's his position anymore. So the right thing to do is, is just to be like, you know, what he said with the Iraq war, which was, yeah, I said that back then. My position is different now. I was wrong. I apologize. If you elect me, I will not cut Social Security. I will expand it. That was the right response. Mm -hmm. Instead, he pretended that Bernie Sanders accused him of something that he didn't accuse him of and is now not committed to supporting him if he gets the nominee, if he, if he is the nominee. So this does start an important, broad conversation about Bernie Sanders' electability. And, and we want to end the podcast specifically by making an argument for why Bernie Sanders is absolutely an electable candidate mm -hmm. by most measures. So first of all, there is... No reason to doubt whether Bernie could have a chance in the primary. That is definitely clear. Like there are, um, he's he's drawing from candidates or from from moderates that like Joe Biden. He's drawing from further left people that like Warren, um, and like ultimately, like he's polling um, very well in like the upper twenties and continuing to increase and so like it's pretty clear that his messages are getting to democrats overall so you know across across democrats whether they agree with his policies or not 70 percent of democrats say that they like him which is just an outrageous fact like he is an exceedingly popular candidate even if people are questionable about his policies. And ultimately, we know that people make so much of their political choice based on who they like and who they, you know, think is authentic rather than just their policies. So that's a tremendously powerful fact. He's also polling. Um, he's tied with Biden in early states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And these are real, really key states for getting momentum going forward. And a lot of polls recently have shown him actually ahead yeah. in uh, Iowa and uh, most recently, um, 
it showed him ahead by double digits in New Hampshire, double digits in Utah, which I, I don't not actually sure if that's an early state, but a poll did come out about that mm-hmm. that showed him way ahead. Uh, he's ahead by a few points in California, which mm-hmm. that's a big powerhouse. That's a new thing, yeah. Um, and on top of this, he is continuing to raise tons of money from his grassroots network. So a big challenge, especially following the early states, especially following Iowa, is you're depleting your coffers. You are trying to differentiate yourself against a wide field. You're doing a bunch of ads. You're doing a bunch of events. You're spending a ton of money. And in the past, candidates um, that have done poorly after the primary have just spent too much money on their primary run and have not saved enough money for the general. But he's got a really strong network of, one, just tons of money coming in, and two, people that have recurrently donated to his campaign and are like continuing and let's, to And let's look so. at where that money comes from. First off, let's look at one of the total numbers. So in, in quarter four, he raised $34.5 million, which was uh, an increase in by $11 million from his previous quarter. The closest person to him that quarter was Pete Buttigieg with $24.7 million. So almost outraising the next candidate by $10 million. He received $5 million individual donations throughout his campaign, and the average contribution was $18. That type of grassroots support and grassroots organizing is absolutely a case for electability. And let's look at one of the arguments that people do make for Joe Biden being the most electable. It's the fact that he does do well in head-to-head matchup polls against Donald Trump. So, Michael, what are Bernie Sanders' head-to-head matchup polls looking like against Donald Trump? So, yeah, so when I was originally hearing, like, hey, Biden does well against Trump, Bernie doesn't do well against Trump, I assumed that meant... Biden beats Trump in head-to-head matchup polls, and Bernie doesn't. Nope, that is not the case at all. In in all the polls I could find, Bernie uh, and Trump and Biden both beat Trump regularly. So if you're worried about just if you're worried about oh well we can't even though we prefer Bernie policies, we have to make the sacrifice in order not to elect Trump. Well, that's actually a false trade-off that you don't necessarily have to make. So in one poll that had Biden up by 4.3% against Trump, Bernie was up 3% against Trump. In another poll, um, it had him, it had Bernie at 40 or at 52% um, versus Trump at 48%. Now in an, in yet another poll, it had Bernie up by 7.9% against Trump and Biden up by 10.2. So we're seeing like, we're seeing uh, Bernie regularly beating Trump in polls and being a clear like second choice in terms of head-to-head matchup. So why would you take that the electability trade-off where you're getting significantly worse policies from Biden if you don't have to? Yeah. So if you if we are going to accept that um, the the argument of Biden's campaign that um, he is electable because he's the most electable because he is doing the best in the poll head-to-head matchups against Trump, well, then you also have to concede that Bernie Sanders is second by that metric. By a small margin. Yeah. So, but that's not the only margin that we should be looking at for what constitutes electability. As we talked about, there's fundraising, which in quarter four, we already said that Bernie Sanders raised $34.5 million. Joe Biden, he raised $15 million. So Bernie Sanders more than doubling the amount that Joe Biden raised. 
And, and that's seriously worrying. We're talking about going against Trump, who has a very well-funded base of like corporate supporters and is, you know, fond of saying that he's a wealthy man. I don't know how true that is. But, you know, we're talking about someone who's going to have a ton of money going into the general election and has been out advertising the, the Democratic can, uh, candidates throughout. And so, like, money is a real factor, not to mention electability. Another argument that people are making is that Bernie Sanders could not possibly unify the Democratic Party because there's a lot of dispute over him in the Democratic Party. A lot of people don't like him in the Democratic Party. And while there are plenty of people, especially, uh, there are plenty of people that I see on my Facebook that are not huge fans of Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is tied with Joe Biden, according to the most recent Morning Consult poll, in favorability and disfavorability. 73% favorability, 21% unfavorability for both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So among that metric, they're the same. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about unifying the Democratic Party, he can absolutely do that. Yeah. And on top of that, not only does he, not only is he popular, not only does he perform well in head-to-head matchups against Trump. Against Trump, His policies perform well as well. Yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of people also say, oh, well, Bernie Sanders couldn't win because he's too far to the left. Well, let's look at some of the policies that he actually supports. So, Michael, what are four policies, four of the major policies that people generally associate with Bernie Sanders? Medicare for all. Yep. Uh, according to most recent poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, 53% support... 43% oppose. Free college tuition. According to uh, a Hill-Harris poll, um, 58% support of registered voters support it, 42% oppose. Wealth tax. According to Reuters, 64% support. That's crazy. And lastly, getting us out of endless wars. Yeah. So according to the Charles Koch Institute, which, you know, interesting that we're citing them, uh, a study found that 51% of Americans did say that they supported completely removing troops from Afghanistan within the year. 22% opposed it. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are the only two Democrats in the primary that specifically said, bring all the troops home. Now, I know that this is specifically focusing on Afghanistan. I wasn't really able to find uh, a poll in general for... Uh, for all parts of the Middle East, but Afghanistan is a significant um, portion of our troops that are overseas. The other Democratic candidates are speaking to 22% of the entire population when they say, no, 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 we, we shouldn't bring all the troops out. So basically what we're saying is there are a number of reasons why you might support one candidate over another but we wanted to make sure and clarify some of those electability questions because we want to make sure that our listeners are informed and aware that you don't have to make that trade-off if you don't want to. Yeah. At the end of the day, Bernie is popular. He does poll well against Trump. He does poll well uh, among Democrats. His policies poll very well. He's absolutely as electable, if not by some measures more electable than Joe Biden.
All right. And with that, we'll wrap it up with our final lighthearted segment. And that is highlights. Yeah. Nathan, what are your highlights? Well, uh, I just started classes, uh, started teaching, and that has been very exciting. Uh, I'm very excited for another semester. And the other one is the fact that the first caucus is right around the corner and Bernie has been doing very well in the early states. And that makes me very happy. That's awesome. What about you, Michael? So for me, um, so I saw Bree this past weekend, which was wonderful. And we threw like a little getting a going away party, um, back in our old apartment, which was really fun. It was like, it was with a bunch of the people that we met and knew down in Norfolk, Virginia, where we lived for, uh, two and three quarters years at this point. Um, we've made some really great friends down there and it was so fun getting them from a bunch of different diverse groups together to just hang out and eat food and play games. Um, and it was a really great time. So I'll miss all those people, but this is exciting. Nice. All right. Thank you everybody for listening to the Perspectrum and we hope you have a great week. 